Welcome to CX Stories. My name's Thashara Dibley, and I'm one of the deputy directors at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. You're listening to a special episode that we've recorded as part of our 2020 ASEAN Forum on responses across ASEAN to COVID-19. And our guest for today's podcast is Aim Simpeng, who is a lecturer in comparative politics here at the University of Sydney. Her research interests center on the relationships between digital media, political participation, and political regimes in Southeast Asia. And she's particularly interested in the role of social media in shaping state-society relations and inducing political and social change. And as part of our ASEAN Forum this year, AIM will be comparing government responses to COVID-19 across Southeast Asia. So welcome, AIM. Thanks for having me, Tashara. Um, so just to kick us off, could you talk a little bit about how the global pandemic has impacted politics across the ASEAN region? Well, that's a really great question to start, because I think if you're thinking about the degree of preparedness from the public health perspective prior to COVID-19, the vast majority of the states, with the exception of Thailand, were decently prepared, not very well prepared. And so Southeast Asia wasn't seen initially by experts from the public health sector as a region that was going to be completely devastated by COVID-19. And I think politically, six months in, there hasn't been too much change politically in some of these states. Some of the countries who started out quite weak politically, like Thailand, um, has gained more stability as a result of the crisis, interestingly. Some like the Philippines and Indonesia, have seen more instability as a result of their failure to respond to the crisis as well as what the population expect the governments to do. Nothing dramatic has changed. So it's hard to make a broad sweeping generalization when there's so much diversity in the political systems across the region. Could you comment on how authoritarian governments have compared with democratic ones in the way they've handled the health crisis? That's always an interesting question when it comes to our Southeast Asia, right? It's a, it's a region that has both authoritarian states and democratic states. And when we're talking about democracy, we're talking about, you know, barely electoral democracies, right? Quite unstable, but democracies nonetheless. And I think given that China had seemed to be doing so well in managing the crisis, there was some kind of expectation that perhaps authoritarian states could exert more control over their own population and elicit more compliance of its citizens through both coercion, just basically people are being used to live under heavy surveillance and censorship that they would perform better. And there's mixed evidence on both grounds, right? And I think if you look at the number of total confirmed cases in Southeast Asia, you start to think maybe it's a democratic state like Indonesia, like the Philippines, they're not doing so well. But when you look deeper, you start to question whether or not it's the nature of regime itself or is the degree to which the government was prepared to respond to the crisis. So I think at this moment, we can conclusively say that authoritarian states have done better than democratic states. But I can tell you one commonality amongst all these states is the increasing use of autocratic measures to control the population and control the message. And this runs across all states, including democratic ones especially. Oh, that's interesting. Could you elaborate a little bit on some of those autocratic mechanisms that states are using? Sure, I want to highlight two in particular. The use of state emergency, um, emergency decrees of all types that, that directly obviously curb 
freedom of expression, freedom of press, and to some extent freedom of mobility have been used across the board. And it's not uncommon, even amongst more advanced democracies in the world, to be imposing some kind of state emergency decrease because of the nature of the crisis. However, there have been some other developments. So two things in particular that are of note, for example, in the Philippines, the government tried to pass the anti-terror bill to basically allow the state to be able to decide what action would constitute violations against national security and would constitute terrorist acts without the government having to provide too much proof and giving government the wide-ranging power to interpret particular activities to be of terrorist nature. And this happened during a pandemic. And even the Filipinos, activists, um, human rights groups came out in protest, even though the Philippines is under the harshest and longest lockdown in the region. So that happened in the Philippines, a democratic state. In Myanmar, um, the military has completely securitized the COVID-19 responses. So the military is at the very top of the pyramid in terms of managing the pandemic. And as a result, they have began to start fighting against the Arakan army in a kind state during the pandemic time. So these are some really extreme examples of how the state uses COVID-19 crisis as a way to advance its own security agenda and take advantage of a population that is frightened and in need of border and security to pass legislation or make particular government actions that are of grave concern for potential for human rights abuses. So in this sort of context, I imagine that social media plays a really important role in forms of resistance amongst the population. Could you talk a little bit about how social media has been used to respond to some of the actions governments have been taking? One of the key things I want to note when looking at government responses across Southeast Asia is that we can conclusively say that states that have enacted early and hard lockdowns have done better than states that have not. And social media became a tool early on, especially in states where governments were delaying enacting lockdown. The public and NGO communities have been able to galvanize the social media space to pressure for more clear, transparent government response that would lead to lockdown. So initially, social media was really important to filling some kind of void, especially in the cases where governments seem uncertain of what to do. For example, Indonesia, the actions really came about after months of basically pressure groups through online media, in particular, pressuring governments saying you need to you need to do something is getting out of control. So I think social media fill a lot of that gap where there isn't sufficient information coming from authoritative sources. So Southeast Asia is a fascinating region also because a whole range of countries in the region have pretty draconian cybersecurity laws or laws governing cyber conduct online. So this is another way in which the states can increase its autocratic measures to try to govern information flow, but also the narratives about the government responses online. So I think social media has played both a really crucial role in mobilizing and galvanizing public support for governments to be more proactive and also 
more clear about what they're doing so that the citizens can follow. But it also provides, of course, opportunities to promote and propagate misinformation, especially relating to cures. And I think this is not uncommon across the world because it's a kind of disease that's new. There isn't a lot we know about its origin. And so there's this knowledge gap that makes people start to look for answer and they're searching for answer on social media. And as you know, Southeast Asians are the most social media active users in the world per capita. So on the one hand, the government being indecisive about what they're doing, but on the other, it's just that the nature of the virus itself has so many uncertainties that it propagates even more spread of false information, especially on social media. Aim, could you give us a rough overview of how governments across ASEAN countries have responded to the introduction of the pandemic, how they've approached managing the pandemic? If you look at the government response strategies, you can divide them into two large groups. States who went hard and early in their lockdown, and the others were states who went slow in their lockdown. So the Philippines was the one that went early and hard in their lockdown, severe lockdown, the most severe and the longest lockdown in the region. That's beginning in March 15. But if you think about it, the earliest case discovered in Southeast Asia was actually late January. That's still about six weeks after the the cases were discovered in the region. And the later states that implemented lockdown were in the end of March or early April. So basically two months out after they have confirmed cases. And what we see so far after six months is that the countries that went hard and early didn't necessarily do better than the countries that went later. And also it matters how hard they went, right? So Indonesia is the weakest case with a patchwork strategy. Jakarta first, and then other uh, localities follow, but not across the board. Other states went later in lockdown, like in Singapore, controlled really quickly, but it's now experiencing a second wave. So I think we don't know which type of strategy seems to work better. What about border closures? Some states were restricting flights from China quite early on. Brunei, for example, they've been really successful. Yeah. I think that has a lot to do with the number of travelers from China they receive. Thailand is obviously the number one source for Chinese travelers in the world. Uh, last year, it received 11 million Chinese tourists. That actually explained one of the reasons for why the government didn't impose lockdown until much later in March. Clearly, the economic implications were priority. And I think... It's a difficult balance to make for any government, especially in Southeast Asia, where there is high inequality. Any kind of lockdown has immediate economic impact on people's livelihood. And so the relationship between when does land closure occur and the number of Chinese travelers a country receives, I think it's important in explaining why some countries should have had a lockdown before, but they haven't. Some observers say Asian countries seem to have coped better with the pandemic because of a strong compliance culture. What's your view on that? I do think that there is a stronger compliant culture in some of the Southeast Asian countries. I think some of the Southeast Asian countries have an established routine of wearing masks, not particularly because of SARS, but because of pollution. 
basically people had masks around their house without having to wait for the government directive to wear masks. This leads to the other question I wanted to talk about is the issue of civil society organizations and religious bodies filling that void where government was indecisive or was taking slower actions. And I think that some of the countries that have done well, like Vietnam, Thailand, to some extent Laos, there had been well-established non-governmental networks, volunteer-based networks that have been the forefront of public health management connecting communities with the state authorities. So one of the greatest examples of that is the Village Health Volunteers in Thailand. It's a program that was established in the 1970s with early investment from the Japanese government to recruit volunteers, almost exclusively women, older women, to join this program without having any training at all, in uh, medical training at all. They just have to be good people and wanted to help the society. And during this COVID-19 pandemic, over a million of these volunteers were out since January, way before the government lockdown in March, to do public-facing educational work to get people to wear masks, wash their hands, measure the temperature, tell them about what's true and what's false when it comes to COVID-19, way before the government has actually done anything. And so the strength of those networks And to some extent, the society being used to practicing particular uh, health habits like wearing masks, I think helps a lot in the countries that have done better in the first six months than other countries. So I don't know how much of that is cultural, but I think it's really important to look at a number of factors that contribute to a more successful management of, of, of a country that's not what the government's doing, but rather what the society has done as a whole to face the crisis. So just as a final question, I'm interested in your views on how sentiment towards China has changed over the last six months in Southeast Asia. I don't think much has changed. And that's so interesting, right? Because you have countries that sustain anti-Chinese protests before, and yet there was no public outcry, especially not from the political elites anyway, that somehow China is at fault. They just went along with what they had to do. China actually poured in aid to some of the key countries in mainland Southeast Asia, particularly Cambodia and Myanmar, and to some extent Laos, to help manage the crisis and to actually stymie some of the anti-Chinese sentiment had been bubbling away that had nothing to do with COVID, right? So in the case of Cambodia, for example, there had been a recent increase in anti-Chinese sentiment as a result of growing Chinese investment in casinos that have led to increase in property prices, forcing some of the poorer people off the area they used to be able to afford to live. And so part of that aid from China was to put a lid on some of the anti-Chinese feelings that some of the locals had before COVID. So overall, I don't think that any of the Southeast Asian leaders have really said anything anti-Chinese to date. They just took it as, well, we have to deal with this pandemic. That's what we've got to do. 
that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Aim, for summarising so succinctly what's going on from a political perspective in, in ASEAN in, in response to the pandemic. For those of you listeners who are listening to this in the first week of August, don't forget to post your questions on our Facebook page or YouTube account. And we look forward to talking to you, Aim, at the panel discussion next week. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to SEAC Stories. This episode is part of a special series of recordings we're doing for the 2020 ASEAN Forum, which focuses on the responses to the COVID-19 pandemic across the region. Each of our speakers has recorded a video in addition to this podcast, which you can catch on our Facebook page, YouTube channel, or the SEAC website. If you have questions for the speaker, please post them wherever you watch the video or post it on Twitter using the hashtag ASEANforum20. I'll be putting the questions to our panelists during a panel discussion on the 12th of August, which will be recorded and posted on all of our channels as well. See you there.